Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of SG Explained. My name is Elliot and joining me today are my non-COVID positive friends, Shamian and Rovik. Hey guys, how you what's all up, doing? What's up? I was COVID positive. You hear an unedited like cough sound, right? It means Rovik didn't do his job of cleaning the audio. <laughs> <laughs> it's theater of the mind. You should feel like you're in the same room but away from the germs. <laughs> Elliot, I'm glad you finally have gone through this rite of passage together with us. What an ass time, is Essentially. Speaking of an ass time, well, t- today is not going to be like that. Today is going to be a great time. You're going to spend the next hour or so with us on a topic which I guess has been somewhat of like a recent discussion locally, but we're not so interested mm-hmm. in like, you know, breaking down this um, saga that just transpired. You can read mothership for that. There's like 10 articles do in one day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and as far as I know, I don't think any of us here have partaken in any of it to gather research for this episode. Our the research curtain... is fully desktop research. <laughs> oh, fully. Comp- I'm a keyboard warrior end to end, okay? Uh, so we're going to be talking about drugs. How many we've talked about? Yeah, prostitution. Uh, <laughs> we talk about all the vices, but the one that we avoid for a while is drugs. Yes, exactly. We've even done a Zook episode. <laughs> talk about vices. <laughs> one of the closely linked ones perhaps <laughs> but yes there's a lot to be said about drugs okay but I think today's focus really is on our past with it I think there's a lot of discussion going on about what's the role of drugs it's not just local discourse but a lot of global discourse about it when you say our Elliot you mean Singapore's not I mean ours. Singapore of course I don't mean like I don't mean like Rovik me and myself <laughs> we're just here to lay some facts and of course kind of like discuss this evolution actually I was more interested not in like drugs per se but I'm interested in um, the trend right like how it started off pre-colonially yeah. um, why are we so hard on it why are we, why are we mm-hmm. like anti-drugs um, the way we are is it an inherited thing I think I have all these questions right that stemmed off how we're tackling it and viewing it today so we're going to talk a little bit about our past with it how the perception of it has changed or you know maybe not changed uh, throughout the years and regardless of your stance towards drugs and of course when I say the word drugs you know, it's this very loose, broad way of categorizing a whole range of substances. Uh, we want to understand a little bit more about how Singapore has positioned itself on the war on drugs. So, uh, guys, I hope you're ready. We're going to take a deep dive into Singapore's history yes, with we drugs. Are. I think, you know, the best place to understand Singapore's relationship with drugs and the policies revolving around it will have to go all the way back to 1973 and that's the Misuse of Drugs Act of 1973. That was the very first time we implemented something like that. And it's our drug control law that classifies substances into three different classes A, B, and C. And this particular act actually has a lot of presumptions made by design. So I'll give you an example of that, okay? Like in section 17, the possession, consumption, manufacturing, import, export, or trafficking of opium, morphine, cannabis, and other controlled drugs, which is actually a list of about nine substances, in any amount are illegal. And persons caught with less than the mandatory death penalty amounts of these controlled substances face penalties ranging from caning up to 24 strokes to life in prison. And it's pursuant to a law change in 2009, cannabis, or you know, more affectionately known as marijuana, and marijuana mixtures, uh, aka anything that's diluted with other substances, are treated the same under Singapore law uh, because 
the presumption is that the intent overall is trafficking. Now, in 1975, the Misuse of Drugs Act was amended to impose the mandatory death penalty for those who manufactured, imported, and trafficked heroin and morphine above certain quantities. Now, some scholars explain that the burden of rebutting presumptions lay on the accused based on a balance of probabilities. And so a person could therefore be sentenced to death for drug trafficking even if the judge had a reasonable doubt as to whether or not the drugs found in his or her possession were actually in fact for the purpose of drug trafficking. So interestingly, rather than being presumed innocent till proven guilty, in drug cases, there was a reversal in the burden of proof. Those accused of trafficking will need to prove their innocence instead. And the mandatory aspect raised some concern among legal experts who felt that the imposition of mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines on judges promoted parliamentary supremacy over judicial autonomy. How do we feel about that, guys? I watch so many crime shows. I've been on this binge of watching like Criminal Minds and Castle, yeah. all these like 2000s procedurals, right? And it's always like, mm-hmm. you always hear, I'm innocent to proven guilty. And then I, 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 we did the research for this and I was like, wow, when, when there's a death sentencing, it's always like hard and fast because over here you need to prove you're innocent, which is, this is the first time I'm hearing it. Usually I always thought like, yeah, innocent till proven guilty. Uh, so very interesting precedent that we're setting for this particular law. I, I just have two comments. The first is I think there was a missed opportunity for the law to be named something that could be acronymized. The MDMA. Misuse of Drugs Mismanagement Act. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then we do on the nose, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. The second the second comment is actually to the point around, I guess, the reversal of, of the burden, right? When it comes to drugs, even if you were to assume that the person was not importing it for the purpose of trafficking, I think there is a very likely chance that that drug will probably make its way someone else anyway right there is some probability and that probability i guess some would say dangerous enough right for for you to basically say look even if you weren't intending to traffic it it's likely that someone would find it or you may pass it to someone or you know a lot of drugs are quote-unquote communal in nature in that case in effect would it be trafficking anyway right and so that's where I can understand why they would argue for this reversal and burden of proof. Basically shit you don't want to get into, man. Because they don't care about your intent. Because they've already presumed the intent is trafficking. So I think that's super tricky. Now, the Misuse of Drugs Act can be broken into three simple parts. And we're going to take a look at it right now. First one being drug possession, of course. It's an offense under Section 8A of the MDA to possess controlled drugs. And the penalty for just possessing drugs is a maximum of 10 years imprisonment or a fine of $20,000 or both. Drug consumption makes up the second component of this. And under Section 8B of the MDA, consumption of any controlled drug or specified drug is an offense. And if you're wondering what's a specified drug, uh, they basically roll out a separate list called the fourth schedule. Any drug that's listed there is considered a specified drug. And the penalty for consuming either controlled or specified drugs is the same. It is a maximum of 10 years imprisonment or a fine of $20,000 or both. And this is the same as the maximum penalty for possession. Just so you guys know what are some of the drugs on the fourth schedule, right? Yes. Uh, a whole list of them. The idea is that things like cannabis, like your your usual suspects are all on this list, right? Heroin, ketamine, methamphetamines, MDMA, which Rovixo colloquially mentioned just now. 
You know MDMA is, right, Shamian? No, I don't. That's why I've just it's been ex- quiet. It's 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 like uh it's like ecstasy. It's okay. Like when like if I ever get falsely charged, right, they can just listen back to this episode and they know that I just don't have the knowledge. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. Ignorance. Ignorance is my evidence, sir. I had no idea it was a drug. Just to give you guys an idea, things that are class A substances, as an example, the range is so wide and they are very thorough about how they classify things. Like cocaine, as an example. Right, it's not just about bringing cocaine in. You can't bring cocaine-related components like cocoa leaves and and all that kind of stuff into Singapore, which is which I, I'm assuming you know you, with someone who's good enough, these things could extract said substances. So, so basically, the specified drugs are a list of drugs that are severe, right? Meaning these are like the worst of the worst. Then there are another set of drugs called controlled drugs, and controlled drugs are basically drugs that. The Health uh, Science Authority, which is our version of the FDA for for pharmaceuticals in Singapore, that they are monitoring and that they will make sure that if you do prescribe it, that we know how who's going to, how much it's going to, and we make sure that abuse cases don't happen. You can track right? it down, essentially. Yeah. And then, the, of course, a third category of drugs, which are basically off-the-shelf drugs that are, are deemed not to be harmful, right? So meaning that the, the chance of abuse is lower, than controlled drugs or and especially specified drugs. And so that's why you have like cough medicines that are, you know, non-alcoholic. Hey, the only like drug I'm on. <laughs> no, no, no. She's not abusing it. Just just for the <laughs> record, she's, she's not abusing it. Rovic, keep one of my keep one of my coughs. If the police have a reason to believe that you have consumed drugs, they have the right to subject you to a urine test and or a hair test under sections 31 and 31A of the MDA, and failure to provide a specimen of urine for a urine test will also result you in a maximum of 10 years imprisonment or a fine of $20,000 or both. And as if that's not scary enough, let's talk about drug trafficking, which is so much of what we were talking about in terms of intent, right? Now, the most serious of the trio is, of course, the offense of drug trafficking under Section 5 of the MDA. And if you are involved in selling, transporting, delivering, distributing, or even offering to do any of these acts, you will be considered to be committing drug trafficking. And on the other hand, you can also be convicted if you order someone else to transport any controlled drug. So this also applies to trafficking drugs on someone else's behalf, even if that person is not in Singapore. So how does that work? So is it like I say that, oh, I'm doing this for my cousin, but my cousin's not in town. So I think in this case, it's talking, it's trying to target basically syndicates, right? So for example, there could be a drug syndicate, maybe the boss is in Hong Kong, and maybe Mian, you are like a relative or a friend of this boss in Hong Kong, and that boss tells you, Mian, can you make sure that someone in a neighboring country brings drugs into Singapore, right? So you can say... Oh, it wasn't me. It was like my friend in Hong Kong who told me to do this. But you are still liable. Yeah, because you facilitated it, essentially. So basically, everyone in the chain of command has to be reprimanded if you, you think about it. You can't be a part of drug no activity, matter where you essentially. Are. It recognizes that drugs are not just a personal or, or, or like relational decision. It's part of you know wider crime network sometimes. And I think a point to note is also that under the MDA, trafficking drugs and importing or exporting drugs are very different, but both are offenses under the Act. So whether it's personal or whether it's entrepreneurial in nature, like both of these things, while treated 
differently in the law, both are incriminating, right? So you cannot just be like, yeah, the private limited, like I was shipping this for like the company, right? I didn't know there was like boxes of drugs inside this carton. You're still liable at a certain level for not checking, for not understanding what was being shipped over. Um, and you are you are part of the problem, like, essentially. So I was wondering why you gave the legal part to me, because as you mentioned, I love these things. But I see that you've reserved the, the fun part to me, which is the history of drugs <laughs> in Singapore. I guess I guess I wanted to find out, like now that we know the law as well, like how did it come to be, right? Like why did this law come about, and why is it so harsh? Problems with drug abuse came well before the NDA. It was prevalent as early as the 1840s when opium was a hot topic. And if you've listened to our Secret Societies episode, you'll realize that this was a big problem. Also our prostitution episode. Go check those Also out. our merchants episode. Like, also honestly, lots of episodes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've talked about opium, right? By estimates, there were about 15,000 Chinese people who were addicted to opium during the years of 1840 to 1960, which is no small number when you think about our population size back then. According to academic research, opium first appeared in written documents in 1819 and was one of the gifts from Stanford Raffles to the ruler Tamangong Abdul Rahman. I mean, the British have had a very nasty history with opium if you think about Hong Kong and opium was there. So they were trying to play similar tricks in Singapore. <laughs> uh, over time, the drug became popular among Chinese immigrants across many of the social classes. And for the rich folks, it was not just customary practice, but also a flex of their status. Lots of times they would smoke opium during meetings as a way of maintaining their business relationships. It's probably the equivalent of doing business maybe at a hookah bar or in Singapore at a Siamkyu, right? Uh, one of these Thai discos. Among the coolies who toiled hard under harsh labor conditions, opium smoking offered respite and was said to be a solution to their common health problems where access to traditional and Western medicine was really not an option for some of them. And this is Again, the whole point around painkillers and a panacea, right, for, for pain treatment. Singapore actually was, at a time, a thriving opium distribution center in Asia, really Ooh. taking advantage of our trade links, uh, with opium yeah. being a cornerstone of revenue for the British government. Chinese merchants not only used opium as a tool for labor control, but also profited heavily from the sale of drugs to addicted Chinese communities. I guess when they say Chinese merchants here, we really mean the secret society leaders. It was uh, hard to differentiate the groups if you go check out our episodes. Yeah. And this did not mean that there was no opposition. In 1906, the Singapore Anti-Opium Society was formed due to the campaigning efforts of Chinese associations and social reformers. The society included Western-educated straight Chinese who took on the role of moral Puritans, strongly advocating for the elimination of a multitude of vices such as gambling, prostitution, drinking, and opium smoking. Even more so, an opium commission was set up in 1907 to look into opium smoking, but concluded its downsides, oh, this is interesting, concluded its downsides were exaggerated and did not support a total prohibition on opium smoking. The Straits Times even carried articles that implied hypocrisy in campaigning against opium, while evils a thousand times more deadly, quote-unquote, in opium, <laughs> such as beer and whiskey, were allowed. Other commentaries openly opposed any ban on opium, arguing that there was no evidence that opium smoking ruined health or intellect. It was also suggested by a missionary 
Reverend Reef, that banning opium could lead to unpleasant relations between the Chinese and the Europeans. And we don't want that. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a very practical reverend, you know, like he's like, nothing to do with health. It's uh, about relations. Or, or about spirituality. It's like, yeah. you, know, you care about the relations with the Europeans. During the Japanese occupation, opium smoking was actually encouraged and functioned as a politicized tool to ensure that our Chinese population uh... remained servile and did not collectively resist the occupation. And Look, I just want to say all of this sounds super interesting because it's the complete flip side on our arguments against drugs right now, right? Basically, we're saying that actually it is more deadly. Uh, The downsides are actually severe enough, even for drugs that are socially more controversial, like marijuana, right? There's a lot of things happening in the rest of the world, but Singapore maintains the position that actually it is still a, a, a very severe drug. And Maybe in some ways it's recognition that we can't take it too lightly looking at what happened in opium. When you look at the commissions back then, the committee set up, it was really just to investigate the opium problem, right? And of course, um, we'll talk a little bit about the heroin problem that evolves from this. But I think the laws didn't change that much. The moment we set our eyes and we put a pretty strict stance on opium, that became the bedrock for every other drug that came after that. And it never mm. really evolved uh, beyond it. I think there are a lot of conversations and it, this conversation between the three of us is going to really evolve quite a fair bit as we move towards the 1970s and even in the 2000s um, when it comes to drug laws. By the 1970s, actually there was a surge in estimated heroin users which rose from 13,000 to about 20,000 users and this precipitated stricter laws in the country's war on drugs. At that point in time, the Central Narcotics Bureau, or the CNB as you guys know it today, uh, was set up in 1971. And a year later, uh, you'll hear this name a lot throughout this episode, the Singapore Anti-Narcotics Association, also known as SANA, was established to complement the work of the CNB. Now, SANA's objectives were about public education on the harms of drug use and the provision of counselling and aftercare services to drug addicts. And so we all know about the Misuse of Drugs Act that came in 1973, but actually this was enacted to tackle the use, possession, and trafficking of drugs and actually replaced a previous sort of regulation known as the Dangerous Drugs Regulation and the Drugs Ordinance, right? Uh, the, the Prevention of Misuse Ordinance. So the MDA was sort of like a very centralized document and everything you see today, they have had some revisions, but by and large, its stance has remained pretty much the same throughout, uh, throughout all these years. As the population of opium addicts continued to decline, they had these opium treatment centers, um, but they started to become a little bit more obsolete. And instead of taking in people who were opium addicts, it was kind of like re-envisioned. So its name was changed to like a drug rehabilitation center or the DRC in 1973. This was obviously to combat like, the wider range of drugs that were becoming a problem. In 1976, it was reported that heroin suspects were being arrested at the rate of, you won't believe this number, 475 people per month. Wow. That's a lot of heroin wow. users. A, a massive operation to tackle this burgeoning problem was launched in 1977, codenamed Operation Ferret. Now, I tried to go and figure out why it was called Ferret, uh, but I'm assuming they were doing like a lot of like deep undercover kind of like operations here, you know, very very weaselly in nature. This involved the Central Narcotics Bureau. It involved the police and customs. It involved SANA, and as well as the Scientific Services Department, which was responsible for testing the urine samples of suspected drug addicts. 
the broad aim of this operation was to arrest, quote, as many drug addicts as possible and isolate them from the drug for a sufficiently long period of time. The operation was also viewed as a means to keep current addicts from, and another quote, contaminating others. So the narrative hasn't changed that much, Rovic, you know, from, from what we were talking about. This was expected to reduce overall demand for heroin. And the operation also had one other aim, right? It was to gather data on the extent of heroin addiction in Singapore and to put addicts on record. To deal with the heroin users arrested, a tough treatment and rehabilitation strategy law was introduced in August 1976 with the key objective to reduce relapse rates through tougher sanctions. From the document itself, I have a really nice quote on what their belief was, right? So they're, they're kind of profiling here. The drug addict is generally an unhappy, muddled, and pathetic person who would barter his worth and dignity for a taste of drugs. He comes from every strata of society. His root problem is often found in the damaging relationships and social difficulties in the family. Unfortunately, some families do not make a deliberate attempt, even with assistance, to resolve or modify the addict's difficulties that are crucial to success in treatment and rehabilitation. Just, just on this profile alone, right, it's very clear on how heavy-handed they were treating drug users back then. I think it's useful to also set some context here, right? So this heroin epidemic was happening in Singapore, but in the wider global landscape, if you remember, the 70s was very much known as the hippies movement, right? So there was mm -hmm. a lot of proliferation of drugs happening in society in general, whether it was uh, LSD, ecstasy, and many other drugs, right? So people were moving forward from opium. I mean, this is many years after opium, in fact, and go trying different drugs that were being chemically produced as sort of biopharma and pharmaceuticals in general just became a lot more developed. Yeah, it was the experimental age, right? There's this great TV show I recommend to a lot of people. It's very depressing, but it's a great TV show. It's called Dope Sick, and it's on Disney Plus if you if you have Disney Plus in Singapore. But it basically talks about the oxycodone epidemic in the U.S., Right. And it was a very similar sort of point, how people need drugs to treat pain. And actually pain was being used as a way to encourage people to, to experiment. Right. And I can imagine that's a lot of what happened in Singapore, right? People who were going through the pains of life, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, they, they find a dependency on drugs as a way to deal with a lot of that pain. And so what happens with pain? Pain is, is in some ways is, is untreatable unless you unless you actually move to a place of acceptance, right? Or find ways to, to deal with it in healthy ways. And so drugs can can really latch on to that pain and, and really get very stuck in someone's life. I, I remember reading up about the Sackler family quite a while back. And that has to do with the oxycodone like, epidemic in the US, right? Like Purdue Pharma, essentially like Big Pharma in the US, was over-prescribing the use of oxycodone. And, and that's how like these things can spiral out of control, at, even if profitable. and still being used for like certain medical reasons. So I'm sure with our eyes in Singapore generally is to look at the world and see how problems can kind of like um, spiral out of control. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily surprised by the way we um, take that stance in today's context. So we're going to take a short break and when we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the 1970s era as well as how it progressed to today. Don't do drugs, friends. We'll go for a short break and we'll see you real soon.
It's crazy to think that we're in season five of the SG Explained podcast and you, the listener, have been a great part of that experience. If you like what we've been doing over the last few seasons and you want to support some independent podcasters, here are three ways that you can do so. The first is to subscribe and that's by just clicking the subscribe button or follow button on any of the platforms you're listening to us on. The second is to share. Share our content, our episodes with people that you think would enjoy learning about the Singapore identity and challenging some of the preconceived notions that they may have. And finally, directly support us by clicking on the anchor link in the description area where you can make a small contribution that helps us support some of the costs of producing these great podcasts. Thank you again for being part of the SJ Plain family and we look forward to making many more great episodes for you. We're back. So, guys, before we proceed, actually, I have something for you guys. It's a pop quiz. The best. Before we left off, we were talking a little bit more about the 1970s hippie era. So, my question to you guys is, uh, the 1970s was known as the psychedelic era, not just locally, but globally. Can you guess what were the two hottest drugs that youth were consuming in Singapore during that time. We're talking about the youth in particular at this point in time in the 1970s. Yes, heroin was an issue uh, within Singapore, but not all the youth. You know, the youth are always known with the hippest drugs. Uh, I mean, this is a very weird like archetype to give people. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with cocaine. Ooh. And I don't know, I want to say marijuana, but I almost feel like that's too basic. How about you, Rovik? What do you think are the two hottest? You used the word psychedelic, and that made me think about LSD and yeah, either MDMA or ecstasy. Well, Mian, you get one point because uh, cocaine is wrong. <laughs> marijuana is correct. So cannabis was a very hot drug back then, <clears throat> and arguably today as well. But the other one, and this one surprised me, morphine was the highest use case amongst youth back in the 1970s. Like, what? the hard drug morphine. Morphine itself, by today's standards, is like a way powerful drug. According to current research, morphine is not even the painkiller of choice anymore because of the strong dependency that the body has on it with prolonged usage. If you had to make laws back then to curb the usage of drugs in general, would you go softer or harder? And to me, it kind of folded together as a logical solution that you had to have a pretty tough stance when most of your youth yeah. were, were like hooked up on morphine itself. I think we have this belief that, okay, if you say yes to one type of drug, then it opens the gateway to argue for other drugs. You know, like if you don't, if you don't put a hard stop right now across the board, what's to say like the next hard drug or the next not so hard drug is going to get a pass as well. So I think we kind of had that mentality. That's why our, our act hasn't really changed over the years. Or at least that's what I believe to be so. Say one, okay, like yeah. say no to all. So then you don't have any, any arguments, you know. Very interesting. Uh, it was later on reported that drugs no longer became a solely Chinese problem, but more of a national problem since, you know, it had spread across races and classes. And as with all national problems, we like to take the fight to the educational space. So the Singapore Anti-Narcotics Association, uh, also called SANA for short, set up the Anti-Drug Inhalant Abuse Badge Scheme in 1979. And it was a motivational work 
workshop for secondary school students from uniform groups, and they were taught the effects of drug abuse and built for them a strong foundation of resilience and character building. And the war was on the perception of drugs. Now, the program was quite robust. It featured videos, presentations, and even role play for the students to be actively involved in. And alongside this, Sana set up the Drug Abuse Prevention Committees that SABIA to help eradicate the drug problem at the constituency level. Made up of grassroots leaders and volunteers, each cluster focused on outreach efforts on the harms of drug abuse on the ground. This actually brings back memories of like how every year in um, school, we always have that like what drug drug abuse day is it? Drug no, prevention not drug day. abuse day. Drug <laughs> prevention sorry, sorry. day. Is it drug, drug prevention day? Drug abuse day? What the? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what I mean? It's the day that we all received that teal colored ribbon yes, badge one of the main uh, accompaniments to SANA so SANA is more of the education and capability buildings arm but alongside it of course you need enforcement right so actually one of the, the main units in Singapore at least that should be talked about is the Central Narcotics Bureau mm, which yep, is basically CMB. our version if you if you watch it you know, on Narcos the DEA Drug Enforcement Agency the CNB is our version of it. And so that's the, the main arm of the police that uh, looks after enforcing the MDA that we talked about and also works with SANA to do a lot of education. Oh, we, we could do a whole episode on the CNB, mate. All right. So having explored the CNB and SANA a bit, let's talk about today's current situation. Based on some of the recent events, whether it's a Joseph schooling sort of uh, incident that just played out in recent news, depending on you know when you're listening to this episode, uh, or even uh, broader trends that are happening in the world, right? Whether developments in Thailand or developments in places like the U.S. Global sentiments are changing, and that's, of course, influencing views in Singapore as well. And so there is a need to reamplify and review a lot of our views on drugs, not saying that we're going to change our stance on drugs, but how we actually educate, right, and how we actually combat some of the, I guess, uh, misconceptions or threats around drugs that exist. While we still clamp down hard on drug usage in Singapore, the way that we look at drug users also have changed, right? So instead of just looking at it as a criminal act, we also see a lot of focus on health and rehabilitation, right? And that sort of ties in well with our our episode on prisons that you should definitely check out. One example of this is in 2001, the case management framework was introduced and the CMF is a holistic approach in counseling comprising a two-month pre-release and in-care phase and a six-month after-care phase following the inmate's release. There is, of course, an optional six-month extension. And to build upon this, in 2015, the Case Management Services Program was built as an enhancement. So SANA, uh, which Mian was talking about just now, counsels and provides case management to inmates prior to and during their emplacement on community-based programs. Clients receive six to 12 months of rehabilitative program aftercare upon release based on a framework seeking to build support in the community in order to assist their reintegration back to society. Of the many factors, family support is key to their reintegration. And this goes back to a lot of the key points around drug use, right? It's not really only about uh, someone taking a substance, but a lot of times them seeking to soothe uh, some issue in their life, mostly a pain that exists, right? And so actually, instead of depending on drugs, can you find uh, support in your relationships? Can you find support in your community? And this is a lot of what this uh, tries to do. Another effort was in 2011, Sana introduced the Gotong Royong program, which is 
you know, for a lot of people, basically what they associate with kampong life back in the day, which builds bonding and trust among recovering persons and their families through thoughtful activities. And this is meant to support integration. Again, going back to this point around community as a way to uh, engage individuals and hopefully give them enough support such that they don't need to rely on drugs. July 2016 also saw the official launch of the SANA Step Up Center, a walk-in facility to support and assist recovering persons and their families on their immediate needs and to provide assistance in other ways crucial for recovering persons to reintegrate into society. The center also offers support networks through programs and services. Key assistance includes financial aid, support groups, job assistance, skills upgrading, family engagement activities. In September 2019, SANA also started providing counseling and case management services for first-time drug offenders placed under compulsory supervision by the CNB. And under the program, clients receive up to six months of community-based counseling support and psychoeducation on the negative influence of drugs. SANA has also moved towards more conversations about drugs at an international level. SANA was accorded special consultative status as a member of the United Nations Economic and Social Council and this allows SANA to participate and influence international decisions on drug matters that take place at the UN level. And this is actually very important because in the recent series of events, I mean, there's been a lot of conversations around the liberalization towards marijuana. And actually, Singapore went to the UN and made a very specific and, and deliberate stance to say, hey, actually, don't take it too lightly. Marijuana still has a lot of dangers and Singapore is going to double down on its stance against marijuana. In the same line, you know, on the efforts to educate society and to build awareness within within the family unit and within sort of social circles, there have been some campaigns that have been mixed in their reception, right? And uh, this is based on, you know, stories told to me by my peers around this campaign called Dada Itu Haram, right? And so this actually comes about from a very specific statistic that actually looked at the racial breakdown of not only drug abusers, but new drug abusers, who's actually entering into the drug abusing population within Singapore even today. So it's about, it's about uptake, is it? Is that you're talking about like new uptake of drugs? Where is the basic adoption happening? Because you can deal with repeat offenders, you know who they are, they're they are a known population, but new abusers is creates a trend that you don't want to, to see mm-hmm. increase, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2017, uh, figures released showed that Malays account for more than half of drug abusers arrested in 2016, up from 32% in 2006. If you look at 2019 numbers, actually, Malay community continues to be the biggest represented. Chinese are the second and Indians are third, but... It's scary because uh, it also shows that Indians are the fastest growing within Singapore. So I I think there's a lot of different societal factors happening here that we can't probably unpack here. And I'm sure a lot of people are trying to figure out. But the statistic was shocking enough for people to respond, right? So what happened was that there was a rollout of this campaign by different parts of the Malay community, specifically the Singapore Islamic Scholars and Religious Teachers Association, which is called Purgas. Safina Institute, Mohammadiyah Welfare Home, and Simply Islam, which renewed the anti-drug charge with this campaign. Uh, and this is actually run by a seven-person secretariat, which works with Malay Muslim organizations such as MUIS and Mandaki to tackle the issue. Specifically, Mr. Amrin Amin, which is, who is the former parliamentary secretary for Home Affairs, no longer in government, uh, said people in the community have to show that they care for their friends and families by making it their responsibility to the shield of freedom from drug abuse, Drugs are haram, which means forbidden in Islam, but the problem has haunted our community for a long time. Let's stop the problem in this generation. Don't allow it to grow. Now, why is this controversial? Well, 
one of the key parts of this campaign is actually reporting. The campaign actually encourages people in the community, especially parents who suspect their children of dabbling in drugs, to seek help in early stages and not wait until it's too late. I can understand the mixed reception on this. On one hand, one would think that this is preventative. It is meant to encourage people to stop people who are early on their journey. On the other hand, uh, it is a very unique campaign because there are not there are no campaigns, uh, at least as far as I know, in the other sort of ethnic communities. Right? Yeah, it, it's very targeted, right? Like that's one of the major issues that you're highlighting here. It's that we are almost vilifying a very specific part of the community. It could still be seen as a nationwide problem. And one could argue that actually the correlation may have to do more with socioeconomic factors that also have a relationship with, you know, culture and ethnicity to an extent. But rather than targeting that factor, we're targeting the race race and culture. I guess it does show the complexities of this issue. And it it actually connects with a lot of other broader trends that happen around the world, right? If you think about the U.S. as an example, there is sort of the correlation that a Black person who may be on the street wandering around could be a drug user or a drug trafficker, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's so many TV shows about this, so many uh, media portrayals about this, and we can see how far that can go. We're not saying that we're there in Singapore, but I think there's that concern, right? Mm-hmm. Of what happens if we start uh, targeting too much or we start creating this narrative? For microcosms such as Singapore, where population density is so high, you know, you never really want to make it an epidemic. La. It's the fastest way to spread out of control. So, but. You're, you're right to say that the controversy around this really is in the mixed reception and the potential perception problems that this could could cause. I think it's a it's an optics thing, if you ask me. So before we leave you guys for this episode, it's been a I know it's been a very long one, uh, where we talked a lot about the laws, the history of why things came to be. But if you had to take away anything, our good friends and the kind people at IRB Law LLC actually compiled a list of need-to-know things uh, and I'm going to use it as a takeaway for today's episode, right? So here are 10 things that you should know at all costs. Number one, marijuana, even medical marijuana, is outlawed in Singapore. I think this one is pretty much like a well-known fact. But it's like, duh, right? Yeah. yeah. No, but it, it's even more so important to note this because like Rovig was mentioning just now, like even our neighboring countries like Thailand, They've opened up the medical marijuana laws quite a fair bit. And there's also, I wouldn't say rumors, but on the ground buzz about that happening to our neighboring countries as well. So it's uh, there is a lot to be unpacked about this, but I don't want to go too much into it. Number two, uh, you can be jailed for teaching and publishing information on how to cultivate cannabis, opium, or even coca plants. Coca plants being the cocaine plant that uh, I was mentioning just now. So yeah, you botanists out there, please be careful. Number three, whether you were aware of your possession or not, possession of controlled drugs and substances is punishable by law. Number four, even if you possess only the utensils used for consuming drugs, you can be fined or imprisoned. So when mm. they say utensils, they're meaning like the... The bong, the grinder. But when I was a kid, I remember watching this really weird cartoon and uh, it was Cookie Monster uh, heating up, I think it was cocaine on a spoon. So <laughs> I don't know if a spoon is a utensil that can be on you can be Sesame charged Street. with. No, not on Sesame oh Street lah. Like some Adult Swim show must be like, I mean, oh my god! Yeah, my parents only watched TV in like Australia when I was like fourteen. It was weird. Number five, I did not know that pill I took was an illegal drug. Is not an excuse you can use in court. 
That means whatever you consume, you better be careful. I you feel check like this is the kind that. of thing I will say. No, I think this is the kind of thing that like I will get caught with. That's what I'm telling you. It's not an excuse in court, mate. Like, <laughs> just be aware, okay? If like people give you like pills and shit, like don't just be popping them. You need to them. be careful. Exactly. Don't just be popping pills, dudes. Number six, homeowners, landlords, and tenants can be charged if drugs are found on their premises. So basically, if you're renting your HDB flat, and the guys inside are consuming, like, drugs, you're also liable, okay? So be careful. Make sure you do your duty as a as a landlord, right? To go and say, like, hey, guys, rule number one, no drugs here. But that should be a given. Um, but yeah, due diligence is important. Number seven, if you give information about illegal drug operations in court proceedings, your identity will be protected by the police. So this goes back to what... Um, Rovik was saying just now um, about the campaigns, right? Like you, you could technically they're encouraging you to to like rat on people essentially, right? To go and tell people and like surrender them early on. I mean, they wouldn't use the term rat on people. They would say, you know, caring for someone by oh yes, yes, letting yes. them get help. That's that's official stance. I'm just using the colloquial terms here. Um, number eight. Rehabilitation for drug addicts only applies for first and second time users. Hence, going back to what you're saying, just right, Rovic. Like, yeah, you're supposed to call, like, help people out on their journey to recovery or their early stages of the journey because pardons don't happen all that often. Number nine, Singaporeans and PRs cannot consume drugs even while abroad. And, you know, this harks back to um, the Joseph schooling case that happened recently. Regardless of where you are in the world, as long as you're a Singaporean or a Singaporean PR, you're you're bound by this earth, my friend. Do you know the reason for this rule? You should enlighten us on this, Rovic. I would love to know. I remember reading about this because of Joseph Schooling incident. But the idea is that actually it's meant to close a loophole in our drug laws, right? So imagine, especially because Singapore is very well connected and we're very connected to uh, places where drug enforcement laws may not be as uh, strict, right? It is actually quite easy for someone to, let's say, take an overnight trip to a neighboring country, consume drugs, come back, and then to actually say, you cannot charge me, I didn't take drugs in Singapore. But the point is actually the impact of drugs, whether it's, you know, sort of the, the consequences on family, consequences on health, all of those still apply, right? And so this law was set in place in order to prevent, uh, to close that loophole. And so the way they do that is if they suspect you of taking drugs, they will do a urine test. Uh, if they suspect you of taking drugs and having like spent some time to to let the drug kind of pass through your system, then they'll do a hair test because it stays longer in your in your hair, basically. Oh, it does. It does. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So so that's why the hair test exists. That's why no Singaporean and permanent resident can can consume drugs in while abroad to make sure that abuse doesn't continue even or you don't exploit a loophole to go and abuse and come back and still wreak havoc on your family and communities. Thanks for sharing that. That's actually really interesting. And last but not least, the most important of these 10 things is you could be charged with the death penalty for drug trafficking. So the takeaway for me from this entire episode hasn't changed. Drugs. Yeah, from yesterday till today, from the time I did research two weeks ago till today, nothing has changed. Don't do drugs, guys. Okay? Let's all be clean, healthy, stick to the basic stuff. <laughs> Open a bottle of whiskey, sit down with your friends in the comfort of your own home. Yeah, do do the legal things, man. Like, don't do drugs. My reflection is that I think Singapore's taken a very big lesson away from the opium days, right? And 
sort of the impact OPM could have on a very small country that is very open to trade. Anyone could basically leverage drugs to actually wreak havoc on our communities. And that actually is very bad for social stability. I think especially with communities that don't have community support, that don't have strong access to resources, the effect will be disproportionately bad, right? And so we really have to take care of, of those who are more vulnerable in our communities as well. So, so I think, yeah, our stance on drugs is definitely understandable. There's a whole different conversation around the death penalty itself, but whether or not we should be harsh on drugs, I think it's, it's a very sane law, uh, especially given our current situation. So Yeah, given our history, while a lot of us, maybe especially in our generation and maybe the younger generation, this whole idea of like, why are we so tough when the rest of the world isn't, is a conversation that we have pretty much often especially as we engage with like social media and stuff. But knowing what I know today about um, our past, our own like national struggles with it, I'm honestly not surprised. And it it all coalesces together in something which, yeah, I could definitely see as reasonable and sane, as you put it. With that, I think that comes to the end of our episode on one of the hardest topics I think we've had to broach, drugs. With that being said, thank you all so much for joining us in this week. If you liked us, please go ahead and rate us. Drop us a nice comment uh, or a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're using. Share it with a friend or even send us your ideas for other episodes that we should cover here on SG Explained. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in the next one. Take care and Bye. goodbye.